Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rainy podcast series brought to you from Cambridge University. For this special episode, I'm joined by Sarah Shoston. And together we're going to be putting the brain on trial to uncover what power science actually has. We'll explore the influence of neuroscience in the courtrooms. The judicial system could be construed as the backbone of how our country operates, a constitutional pillar of our democracy. Does neuroscience shape this? We'll be finding out. Neuroscience findings seem to constantly be grabbing the headlines these days. Brightly coloured brain scans apparently reveal what impulsive and risky behaviour anatomically looks like. Scans also seem to reveal that those who are more likely to commit a crime are also less likely to be deterred by the current judicial punishment system. So, with all these brainy findings coming out, can neuroscience help inform the court system? This is a question that neuroscience and public policy research initiatives at Cambridge University wanted answers to. So they organised a meeting to find out more. Dr Henna Critchlow popped along. First up, I spoke to Paul Catley, Senior Lecturer in Law at Oxford University, to find out exactly how neuroscientific evidence is currently being used in the British courts. What I've been looking at, along with colleagues, has been the use by defendants in criminal trials and in the criminal process more generally of neuroscientific evidence. What we found is that use is being made both to appeal against conviction and appeal against sentence and also to resist extradition claims and that that evidence is being treated seriously by the courts who are interested in hearing it, are listening to it, aren't always accepting it as necessarily being determinative. But in a significant number of cases, it is proving really valuable for those who are making use of it. Typically, it, it could be um, a defendant who is, is producing evidence from, from, say, an MRI scan that um, they have a particular brain abnormality and that that abnormality helps to explain their behaviour. What we've looked at is the period 2005 to 2012, and over that period we've found just over 200 cases out of a huge number. Um, so it is very much a minority of cases, and all we're looking at because of the, the system of law reporting are appeal decisions. So what we aren't able to get at is the use in courts of first instance, for example, the Crown Court. What we're looking at is Court of Appeal decisions and Supreme Court decisions. 
So we're finding about two dozen of these cases a year. The number seems to be going up over time, but it is still you know, only a small number of cases. We'll return to Paul later in the show. But first, I wanted to find out about the process of presenting neuroscience in a court setting. So, as Paul mentioned, a brain scan or a psychiatric evaluation of a defendant might be presented to the court by an authority in the field in the form of an expert testimony or expert evidence. Dr. Alec Buchanan works at St. Andrew's Psychiatric Hospital in Northampton as academic director and consultant forensic psychiatrist. He's been called in to give expert evidence, so describes the process. I'm a forensic psychiatrist, which means that one of the things I specialise in is providing evaluations for courts and in testifying in courts. And what do you base your forensic analysis on when you go and testify in courts? The process is broadly similar to that that psychiatrists use in their clinical work. One takes a history from a patient, one examines the person, and then one undertakes any further tests that are required. You then produce a conclusion, and if the court want you to, you go and explain that conclusion in court. So how would this actually play out in a real court case? Back to Paul Catley, who gives an example of a real case where neuroscientific evidence was an important factor in a court decision. In this case, the individual had been a a very law-abiding individual, held down a good job. They were then involved in a a major rail accident, as a result of which they suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. What happened next was that it really changed their character so that they became a lot more short-tempered, aggressive, etc. What then occurred was something that prior to the, the rail accident would have been totally out of character in that the individual was driving home one evening and a drunk came out into the road in front of them and forced them to stop. There was a an altercation between the two. And then the individual drove home, picked up a large knife and went back out looking for the drunk who he he found and stabbed to death. Something which, prior to the rail accident, would have just been something totally outside the sort of behaviour of that individual. So, as a result, they were charged with the homicide, convicted of, of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility... But the next stage, which is really quite interesting, is that they were bringing a case against the the train company for for negligence in having caused the accident and, and for their sort of pain and suffering and loss of earnings as a result. Now, normally that sort of claim would be fairly straightforward and they'd be able to succeed and receive compensation. What happened in this case was that they received compensation up to the point where the murder took place and they went into custody. And then the court held that the train company were not liable for their future loss of earnings because they were in prison and therefore wouldn't have had any earnings. In this case, the psychological evidence of PTSD didn't help the defendant. Is this representative of most cases? Well, there was an earlier case which had been decided the opposite way. In that earlier case, an individual who actually was involved in a very serious car accident and as a result suffered major brain damage to the front of the brain, that individual prior to the accident had been 
unable to hold down jobs for long, had repeatedly got in trouble with the police for fairly minor offences, quite often violent offences. After the accident, witnesses agreed that his behaviour had changed. It, and in what it, way it had got worse was in terms of his sort of personal relationships, particularly with women. As a result, what happened several years later was that he committed a number of rapes and sexual assaults, which the experts on his side argued was as a result of the head injury that he had suffered. Experts on the other side didn't dispute that his personality had changed, but weren't prepared to accept that the car accident led to the subsequent rapes and sexual assaults. In that case, the court decided on the balance of probabilities that the car accident had led to the future criminal behaviour and awarded him compensation for the fact that he was now in prison. So in this second case, the evidence from a brain scan helped the defendant avoid a harsh sentence. What was the difference between these two cases that swayed the outcome? Paul Catley continues. The earlier case, the the case where the individual went on to commit rapes, there were quite a bit of scan evidence there showing the extent of and the seriousness of the brain injury that he had sustained. In the other case, which was based around post-traumatic stress disorder, the evidence came from neuropsychologists, neuropsychiatrists, looking at the changes of his behaviour. So we are seeing differences in the types of neuroscientific evidence used, how it's presented and the ultimate outcome in cases. In the two examples given by Paul, the decisions went in the opposite direction for the defendants. Were these outcomes just or was the type and presentation of the evidence swaying the court unfairly? As with any new technology, questions are raised about the practical and ethical implications of the widespread use of this neuroscientific evidence in the criminal justice system. Is this evidence courtroom ready? Stephen Mayers works for the Ministry of Justice, the department of the UK government responsible for justice policy, human rights, civil liberties and the Supreme Court. Stephen outlined some of the legal limitations on using neuroscientific evidence in the courtroom. Science in many ways is not quite advanced enough yet, and particularly how to get down from a generalised point about a neurological condition for the population as a whole, but how that relates to a specific case, which is what the judge is confronting. I think that's, that's a big challenge for the scientific community in a way, to take those generalisable principles or findings about a kind of condition to an individual in a case, in a time, in a place, which is what the judicial system is trying to deal with. Simon Deacon, co-chair of Cambridge Public Policy Research Strategic Initiative, gave some examples illustrating this mismatch between the concerns of science and the legal system. Well, there are cases where the courts have received a lot of scientific evidence, a famous Scottish case involving a claim for lung cancer caused by smoking, and the judge reviewed hundreds of papers in epidemiology, which over many decades had established to the satisfaction of scientists and policymakers that there was a strong causal connection between smoking and lung cancer. And this is more or less universally accepted now and has been really since the 70s. But the, the judge made the point in this particular case that although these scientists 
scientific papers showed that in a given population, smoking was correlated with uh, lung cancer. The particular claimant or plaintiff in the case before him couldn't use this evidence to show that he had suffered lung cancer because of smoking as opposed to some other cause. So I think this is an important distinction between what science does and what law does. Science is often concerned with large numbers, representative samples, drawing inferences from evidence of a certain sort. That isn't always easily translated into the individual claim where an individual is arguing, I've been damaged by a particular, in this case, carcinogenic agent. We can't expect scientific knowledge to transfer straightforwardly into the courts. Now, having said that, we heard today about cases where, in the criminal law very recently, as an appendix to a judgment, the court would explain its interpretation or give an account of the state of the art of uh, neuroscientific literature. So I think over time the courts are becoming used to dealing with this type of scientific literature. Those cases are still exceptional, but we are seeing the courts deal with this and become more familiar with it over time. That's not to say in every case that science beats law, but science is becoming part of law, I I would think, gradually and over time. Back to psychiatrist Alec Buchanan, who agreed that medical versus court-ready psychiatric evaluations are fundamentally different. One problem for neuroscience and for other forms of investigation is that when they're used in court, the process is rather different from the process that applies when they're used clinically. So when a doctor examines a patient and is left in some doubt as to the diagnosis or the appropriate treatment, they may carry out a test. They're using that test to help them explain what's going on and to provide something that's going to help. When things are done in court, the process is often the reverse. There's been an explanation from a defendant, which may or may not be believed, and somebody's using a scan or a test to try and make inferences about the veracity of what the person is saying or to find alternative explanations for what they've done. In other words, the process works rather in reverse. You're doing the test before you've taken a history and found a problem. And it's a new task, really, for neuroscientists to try and apply their techniques in that setting. They were developed for other purposes. Should legal practitioners be trained to understand neuroscientific evidence that while perhaps not perfect, is certainly becoming a familiar presence in courtroom settings? Lisa Clayton, senior lecturer of law at the Open University, believes training is necessary. One thing suggested by the Royal Society, which would be a very good idea when I was working on their working group module called Law and Responsibility, was that undergraduate students in law should be trained in understanding neuroscientific evidence and that neuroscientists should be trained in understanding the requirements of the law. There are many things that go into law courses and expert evidence may be an option that people study as part of their law degree, but there wouldn't be a specific training in understanding science behind expert evidence, which is perhaps what's needed. Back to Alec, who disagrees. He thinks that there are other ways to help the legal system grapple with science. Well, we'd all like to know as much as possible about all of the things that we have to deal with. I think it's asking a lot of the legal system to educate all of its practitioners in every aspect of neuroscience. I think what might help 
is if the legal system had better access to expert advice and to measures of expertise. Not everybody who goes to court as an expert is an expert in all areas equally. And I think we could be doing more in the medical profession to help the law to understand what our qualifications and various memberships mean. Should psychiatrists and neuroscientists be trained in providing expert evidence to the courts? I'm not sure that they need training in using neuroscience information in a courtroom setting. I think they get training in using neuroscience as part of the process of diagnosis and treatment, as indeed they should. I think what psychiatrists who want to go to court should try and make themselves familiar with are the various interpretations which courts put on neuroscience, which aren't necessarily the interpretations that doctors put on them. One of the problems, as I see it, is that if you do a scan and find an abnormality, there's always a temptation in court to conclude that the abnormality in the scan produced the unusual or illegal behaviour that's being talked about in court. What doctors know is that there are all kinds of abnormalities on scans if you scan the general population, and that an abnormality of a scan is of much more significance when it fits in with a pattern of symptoms and signs. That's something courts don't always understand, and it's something that doctors should be aware of if they're going to go to court and talk about neuroscience. Are neuroscientists then swaying decisions by not being aware of legal interpretations placed on expert testimonies? John Spencer, Cambridge Professor of Law, has this to say. I think there is a general problem with juries understanding scientific evidence. And I think there are real difficulties in presenting it to juries in ways that they can understand. I think there are even problems sometimes with presenting it to judges who are not specialists. It is one of the challenges how we should deliver expert evidence to the courts. There are two ways of doing it. One way is to have adversarially called expert witnesses, and another way is to have experts called as assistants to the court who are chosen by the court. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both systems, and we use both at different parts of the English legal system. My preference has always been for the second method rather than the first, which I think probably means a better quality of expert evidence is given to the court. A bigger problem is when the scientific evidence is actually relevant to a particular issue that they have to determine, then making sure the evidence that they receive is sound and state-of-the-art and that they actually understand it. We've got to remember that on the criminal side in this country and indeed on the civil side in the United States, um, key legal decisions are often made by juries consisting of lay people and made by juries who don't give any reasons for their decisions. And whatever the law may say about responsibility and however neuroscience may inform the law in relation to the rules, ultimately people tend to make decisions on juries according to what they just broadly feel is right or isn't right. Many years ago, 
Lord Denning, as he later became, gave evidence to the Royal Commission on Capital Punishment, and he said, I know as a judge that if the jury are sorry for the defendant, they'll find a way to find him not guilty because of insanity, and if they're not sorry for the defendant, whatever the law says, they'll say he's guilty of murder. We'll return later to the point of public and jury opinions, but first, many people at the meeting agreed with the previous point that there is a problem with legal interpretations being placed on evidence. How it is presented and what is presented sways juries and decisions, as we heard before in the difference in outcomes of the cases of a man diagnosed with PTSD versus the man with an MRI scan evidence of brain abnormality. Is it fair that neuroscientific evidence holds this sway in court? Are neuroscientists confident that the neurological evidence in use is up to scratch to have this importance in courtrooms? Brain scans are being presented in court, but do they mean what we think they mean? Can scientists really interpret scans to the extent necessary to justify their use and the sway they have? Professor John Picard, a neurologist at the University of Cambridge, isn't so sure. The important thing to remember, however, is that brain scanning is still, although very sophisticated, is still pretty primitive in the way it can be interpreted and does demand an awful lot of mathematical juggling in order to make sense of it. And there's no yet consensus about how a lot of the data can be interpreted. So it's not yet at a stage where I think it's sensible for lawyers to rely upon it as a way of making diagnoses. And indeed, having a single brain scan which can diagnose, for example, depression, PTSD, or psychosis is a holy grail of psychiatry, still elusive. Paul Catley provided Hannah with an example of brain scan problems. Pedophilia cases catch public attention and anger, so why don't we use brain scans to identify pedophiles? There are hidden dangers of relying on brain scans that become apparent by considering this example. One thing that I think is apparent is that um, quite a number of tests have been done uh, of individuals looking at, at sexual attraction. And they, they've been done with uh, people who are heterosexual, people who are homosexual. And what they've identified is responses in the brain to, to visual stimuli, which, which seem to be able to point to uh, attraction. There is then a limited amount of, of research which has also looked at that in relation to, to paedophilia. So what there seems to be is an ability to at times identify accurately uh, whether someone is attracted sexually to, to young children. What is more problematic is whether that attraction would actually lead to behaviour because it might well be that these individuals, whilst attracted, would be able to control their behaviour. And at the moment there's no brain scan that can um, diagnose that impulse control. No, there isn't. Uh, and there's also some uh, fairly worrying research which suggests that what is often viewed as simply identifying attraction can also identify repulsion and, and failing to differentiate between the two so that you might be identifying someone who is really abnormally repelled by the idea of sexual involvement with a child as well as someone who is sexually attracted to a child. 
Neuroscience seemingly faces many problems at present when informing the courts. But what about the future? Could neuroscience ever be at a stage to more concretely help inform or reform the criminal justice system? How about using neuroscience to help instead of commit people based on a brain scan to provide a more tailored rehabilitation approach? Stephen Mayers, whose area of specialization is sentencing and rehabilitation at the Ministry of Justice, had this to say on the future of UK-based policy. Uh, there's an increasing awareness within the criminal justice system in the UK that we need to sort of up our game a bit on dealing with mental health issues, um, both at the early stage, and people may be, not be aware of um, what's called the liaison and diversion, which is a, a system which has been, just been piloted since April this year to try and pick up people very early in their journey to the criminal justice system, particularly after arrest, um, who, who clearly manifest mental health uh, needs and attempt, in some cases at least, to divert them into mental health treatment rather than into a... To, a criminality, uh, a criminal justice pathway, uh, which is being piloted in a few areas by the NHS with support from the Ministry of Justice, seems to be going quite well at the moment. John Picard gave an example of how recognising mental health disorders in the first place is both important and challenging, and once done, can inform rehabilitation through new methods. Patients with neurosurgical problems often present with what I call experiments of nature. And they're often misdiagnosed because people don't suspect that bizarre symptoms can have an underlying organic basis. So, for example, we have patients who um, have been dismissed as hysteric, accused of shoplifting, um, forms of dementia, but actually have got neurosurgically reversible conditions. So there's one chap who had a big hole in his head, but it was covered up by very long hair. Whenever he stood up, he became very bizarre and appeared to be drunk, so he was called in by the police every so often. And yet what we had to do was to reconstruct and make sure that his skull was intact, and then all those symptoms disappeared, but did need a new technique just for him alone, where the plate had to be put on externally to begin with before we could internalise it a year later. And he's now a happy chap and married, etc., he was dismissed for a long time and really became almost on the scrap heap of life. Advances in neuroscience knowledge have also helped shape how younger individuals are treated in the criminal system in terms of their sentencing. Dr. Kyle Treiber, lecturer in neurocriminology at Cambridge University, spoke about the workings of the adolescent brain. One uh, very exciting thing that's happening in adolescence, which uh, is fairly on, on the forefront of, of, say, the past 10 years in, in neuroscience uh, and, and neurocriminology, which, which I study, is the fact that the brain is continuing to develop during adolescence. And there are really important changes that are happening that have to do with motivation uh, and with the control of action. So there's a rewiring of the brain during this time period so that the brain gains more coordination between the cognitive control and the emotional response to, say, motivators. And so it's a very important time period that the input that's coming in is not influencing that process in a negative way. There is uh, what's called um, neural pruning where you have a very large amount of, of growth of neurons right before adolescence and then during adolescence these are being culled back and those pathways that are being used, the neurons that are being activated, they strengthen their connections and so the behaviours that you are 
undertaking are going to be utilizing those those neural pathways, and so those behaviors will then imprint in to some extent upon the brain. So that's what we talk about when we talk about plasticity. So yes, the behaviors that you're taking undertaking during adolescence are going to influence the shape of the brain once you get to adulthood. One thing that is uh, particularly, I think, problematic in adolescence is substance use because substance use targets the specific areas of the brain that are being rewired, and particularly the motivational areas. And if that substance use is happening during this important transition period, it may be that that coordination between control and motivation gets disrupted and does not develop effectively, and then we can see substance abuse disorders and behavioral disorders that can continue from that. And this knowledge has been used in courtrooms across the globe, with young criminals getting reduced sentencing. Other events in adolescence are important too. Head injuries in childhood are increasingly recognised as a potential factor in later criminal activity, according to Paul Catley. There's certainly evidence that a disproportionate number of prisoners have suffered serious head injuries early in their life. What I I think that suggests is that these individuals um, may be less able to control their their impulses as a result of the the head injury, may possibly be more aggressive. But it could also be that they initially suffered those head injuries because they were more prepared to take risks as children, also maybe because they were less supervised as children and therefore getting to dangerous situations. So it's not a simple causal relationship. We return to John Picard, who continues describing the problem of head injuries, including his thoughts on future care directions. There's good evidence from epidemiological surveys that childhood head injuries associate an increased risk of antisocial behaviour later in life. And the importance of that finding is that these children need to be followed up very carefully. They need to have the benefits of being involved with safe, non-invasive modern neuroscience research in order to try and work out when the hormones hit the teenage years why their responses are more exaggerated and potentially what we can do about it. So conventionally these patients, these children, are just returned to the community because physically they appear to be fine. In fact, they should be very carefully followed up and be part of longitudinal studies to try and understand much more about what's happening later in life, just as there are now large-scale studies in childhood of later development of depression, later development of schizophrenia. Then head injuries should be equally, these children as they develop through teen years should be carefully followed. With these ideas and advances abounding, it's important to, in the end, consider what exactly we are hoping to achieve with having a criminal justice system and how the rehabilitation system could help reach these goals. Stephen Mayers from Sentencing and Rehabilitation at the Ministry of Justice. Well, I think it's quite interesting for the UK is that we need a bit of a dialogue around between the legal profession, the medical profession, and most importantly, the public, about what, what feels appropriate and how far or fast or not our legal system should move in that direction. John Spencer, Professor of Law at Cambridge, agrees the public view is important in these discussions. We have to have legal rules which broadly satisfy and reflect the feelings of the general public. Thoughtful people take the position that criminal liability should not attach to people who are not much to fault, much at fault. But I think the general public 
are not convinced of that and they wouldn't accept if neuroscience shows us that paedophiles simply can't help it then obviously the law relating to their responsibility would have to change I think members of the public would say I'm sorry we've still got to lock them up it's still wrong we've got to punish them or something like that Tor Tarantula, a PhD candidate at the Department of Psychology, Cambridge, weighs in on the purpose of the criminal justice system. It's an interesting question what ultimately the function of the penal system is and why we punish people. And if we understand that a little bit better, I think it means that the law can be better equipped to um, decide how people should be punished and, and how best to meet our societal goals by using the tools that we have available. I mean, it's an open question about, I think, a political question about what the purpose of punishment is and what it should be. But um, I think certainly if we get better information about how punishment can be more effective, depending on somebody's state of mind or um, how susceptible they would be to different types of punishment or whether they'd be more receptive to different rehabilitative strategies, depending on their decision-making or depending on the psychopathology they might have, uh, that's useful information to help make sure that uh, people don't commit crimes again. And there's some research to suggest that people who have uh, psychopathy or people who exhibit psychopathic traits don't respond to punishment in the same way or they're not as sensitive to um, potentially deterring punishments. Um, I mean, in those types of cases, it would make sense to better understand how punishment could be tailored to those people or understand how the psychopathology works in order to make sure that um, people with certain mental disorders um, are prevented from committing crimes or can be treated or rehabilitated. There's definitely research to suggest that people with um, different mental disorders or people think about punishment or potential punishment in different ways. Um, the uncertainty of surrounding whether or not they would be punished, um, the severity of the potential punishment. People are sensitive to these things in different ways. People who commit crimes are sensitive to them in different ways, and so that might affect how um, practical it would be to um, administer punishment to different types of people. But then there are also considerations of fairness, and you have to make sure that people with different mental disorders um, or uh, you know, people without mental disorders are um, treated fairly and equally under the law. So, I mean, there's a lot of complicated questions, and I think neuroscience can help. It's important to keep the criminal justice system fair and to have sentences which take into account the mental capacity of the perpetrator, or people with mental conditions may not receive proper protection and care. But there is a backside to this. Paul Catley discussed at the start of the show the case of a man who had his rape sentence lessened by using brain scan evidence to suggest his behaviour was beyond his control. Is this the right thing to do? Just because this man has provided some evidence his behaviour is beyond his control, does that mean we must let a serial rapist with a self-admittedly uncontrollable urge to rape go free? The ultimate function of the penal system is indeed a complex question, as is the still open question of how neuroscience is best used to inform the courts. Well, that's all we have time for this month, unfortunately. Thank you to Sarah Shostan for joining me and also helping to produce this special edition. And thank you to all those who took part. This episode has been produced in partnership with Cambridge Neuroscience and the Cambridge Public Policy Research Strategic Initiatives at Cambridge University. We reported from a special Neuroscience in the Courtroom experience 
exploratory meeting hosted by these initiatives to discuss these very issues. My name's Hannah Critchlow. Thank you for listening. Thank you.